Ready to go? Here we are. June 12, 2011, lecture discussion uh, number 39 on the Book of Romans. And here we are once again, two more weeks of summer remaining. And that's true, isn't it? Two more weeks. Because daylight's going to be growing shorter, and that means that winter is fast on its way. Fast. Let's all say fast. There you go. And it's not about Bonnie and Bill, but it's fast approaching, and so you've, uh, you better hurry. And a lot of you have today, I know, do summer things now. You've got to paint something, you've got to rake something, or you've got to fish something. That's your choices. That's all we can do, right? I, of course, have a different plan than you. I uh, allow the snow to kill the grass and the weeds. Works good every year. Every year I, I can weed or I can wait for the snow and the frost, and I choose to wait for the snow and the frost. Lori gets really discouraged because the neighbors come over and weed our, our lawn. She thinks that speaks badly of us. And I'm not so sure. I, I have to think it about it. But, uh, uh, but uh, I, like I said, I let the snow do its job, and then I let the dark darkness uh, get rid of the uh, peeling paint. And then my favorite, of course, is to allow the mathematics to prevail with regard to the fish. And you know what that is, don't you? I see. I can go get a $25 fishing license. Isn't that what they are now? Or are they 50 bucks now? I haven't got one in a long time. What are they? 25 $25 fishing license. And then I get $100 in gasoline. And then $150 in specialized gear. And then $500 in miscellaneous medical expenses. Because <laughs> when I did it, boys and girls, treble hooks, you could use a treble hook. And... As that treble hook came forward, off went people's ears. And that really happened. You were lucky if you lost an ear, because most of the time you lost the side of your eye. That baby would rake right across your face, take your glasses, throw them in my glasses, throw them into the river. I really enjoyed all of that. So you got to get ready. you got treble hook extraction, and, uh, and that dates me, as, as I just said. you got concussions caused by two and a half pounds of weight, because that was all legal back then. And... Uh, Upside the head, that thing would get you and knock your hat off. And, and that, that combat fishing, that's the way it was. That's the way it still is. Just a little bit less, the single hooks now. But it's pretty much the omnipresent hazards down there. And for our Internet folks, let me say that for the Internet folks, it's not unusual in Alaska to find five to 10,000 Crazed tourists and newbie Alaskans battling it out, flailing away uh, in about 400 yards of the Russian River to get a $10 fish. Now, there's your mathematics, right? And that, uh, and I choose Costco. I do. Over the Russian River. Costco on Saturday is far more civilized than the Russian River, isn't it? And it's bad. You know it's bad. Who goes to Costco on Saturday? I can get a can of tuna in oil for 75 cents. It'll last me till 2014. <laughs> I'm in. Don't have to can it. Don't have to get my lips sewn, sewn back on. Uh, we were talking about this uh, on the job uh, up on the roof the other day, and the older flying Lorenzo had told me, he said... Uh, I don't know how to catch. I don't know how to catch fish one at a time. I thought that was very funny because that's the way we all were back in this, those days, right? You don't catch fish one at a time back then, and uh, you caught fish by the 50s with a net or with eight or nine hooks on. And that's uh, for those of us who grew up here, like me. I, I when I went rabbit hunting, I went rabbit hunting 
50 feet from my house because there were no neighbors and there was thousands of rabbits and we thought that was normal. Anyway, before we uh, begin today, I've got to read uh, Kurt Falk's uh, email. You all remember Kurt and uh, he remembers you and so uh, he's doing an unbelievable job on Podbean. I looked at the uh, I looked at the uh, number of downloads there now, and it's uh, it's approaching uh, 9,000. I think it's about 8,600 on that site by itself. So he sends us a message, and um, he says, Paul, I have fixed the problem with the April 10th lecture. If you remember, that was the one uh, that Jack also, uh, or maybe not, maybe not. Jack did fix the uh, the uh, uh, the the compression on one of them, I think, and um, because we lost the sound a little bit. But this is the one I believe that the uh, uh, it wasn't available to listen on Podbean because it wasn't uh, that wasn't loaded in. Uh, all I have fixed the problem with the April 10th lecture. It is now available for listen on Podbean or download with your iTunes. Have a nice weekend, Lori. Perhaps Steve can mention this in Sunday's lecture. A fellow named Larry in Ohio had mentioned there was a problem with April 10th which Steve transmitted to me via a comment, Hey Kurt, in the May 1st lecture. See, this is how we communicate now, and it's working good. Ben just uploaded May 1st to the, uh, to the uh, uh, site on June the 7th, so I just listened to it May 1st, uh, listened to May 1st yesterday, uh, and it's fixed now. I hope you've all been well. Kurt Falk, uh, Goodyear, Arizona, and thanks, Kurt, for all that you do. It's, uh, it's incredible, you and Ben and, and, and uh, Super Dave. Um, it's really, really amazing. Um, so if uh, those of you who listen to me on the Internet, if you were worried or concerned about that uh, April 10th lecture, it's now up and operating. Okay, where are we? Well, we stopped at uh, Romans 3, 19 and 20, as we should. That is the third great mountain of the book of Romans. And, of course, the others, Romans 1, 17, Romans 3, 10 through 12, the just shall live by faith, none are righteous, no, not one. And now the third great mountain uh, being Romans 19 and 20, which I call the ubiquity of law or the universal, universality of law. The fact that law is, is uh, in every aspect of the creation. And by the way, when I define law, I don't define it individually. It's, there's one law. All law is the same law. We'll get to that maybe uh, as it goes along. And now we're in this arduous process of climbing uh, Romans uh, 3, 19, and 20, or scaling it, if you will. It's kind of, uh, when you walk up against it, it looks like this huge, it's the side of this huge high cliff. Or wait for it. Cliffside. I worked hard on that. Thank you. So it's a, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's a huge <coughs> mountain face in front of us, and, and we began chipping away with it, climbing up it a few weeks ago, and we've made extraordinary progress, and, uh, and perhaps we're um, uh, six, uh, maybe golly, eight inches up already on the side of the mountain, so there's much to be proud of. I'm kidding. Now, I handed out last week Professor Edgar Andrews' book, so you have to bring your book every week now, and those of you who did, get a little extra buffet. Those of you who didn't, raise your hands. <laughs> but uh, and I, I know that we ran out last week and we ordered some more as I said the announcements and, and let me repeat it for those on the internet it is Professor Edgar Andrews the title of it is Who Made God 
and, um, and we'll be referencing it uh, quite often over the next few weeks. And I gave the homework assignment uh, um, to the class last week. It was to read pages uh, 123 through 135, or chapter 9. It's 12 and a half pages, and they're very small pages, and hopefully you've been dutiful. I, I hope that you have, because you'll need to read it. And some of you have asked, and appropriately so, what does the ubiquity of law have to do with Romans 19 and 20? And that's a wonderful question, probably the most obvious of the obvious questions. And some of you have also noticed that Professor Andrews, he quoted Romans 2, uh, 14 through 15, within his proof. And that's something also quite significant. But that leads to another obvious question, doesn't it? What did I say? Edgar Andrews quoted Romans 2, 14 through 15, within his proof, which leads uh, you to ask, what exactly did uh, uh, Professor Andrews prove within uh, pages 123 to 135? Because he certainly did prove it, and I hope you got it. And if you didn't, it's okay. I will, I will get through it for you. Professor Andrews proved he used the fact of the ubiquity of law. He used that fact, and it is a fact. I don't care where you were able to travel in this universe, where you were able to go, and what galaxy you can witness, what, what you can uh, in any way experience. Uh, the law is there. The law is there. And he proved because of that, because that's a fact, that we have law everywhere. In other words, we have purpose everywhere. The universe is not chaotic. It can be studied. It is not random. It has a set structure that can be determined. It can be evaluated. It can be predicted. And that's law. He proved that using the fact of the ubiquity of law, that law cannot, law cannot have an evolutionary origin. It cannot. How do you evolve law? It is not evolvable. So how do you explain its universal, uh, the fact that it is ubiquitous, that it is universal? And thus the subsequent obvious question, if that is proved, that law cannot have an evolutionary origin, it is not possible, then uh, what comes next? What's the next question? If I can prove, and I can, and it will be done, it will be done here, it's been done by all kinds of philosophers and all kinds of scientific minds, if I can prove that law cannot, cannot have an evolutionary origin, then what then is the origin of the ubiquity of law? How did law get this way? Where did it come from? How did it come to be what it is? The real question is what? Who originated the law? How did he put it in place? Why did he put it in place? And we're going to review Professor Andrews' proof and the implications here in a bit, hopefully today, maybe not today. i got a lot of material on the table. It comes at the very end, and we may have to move it to next week. But we're definitely going to go through his proof, just like I would a geometry proof. How many of you loved geometry when you were in high school? Yay, because it is logic-based, and we'll prove it. But first, we're going to do a couple of things that are also here. I was really kind of heartened, uh, actually, and excited as much as I get excited, last Sunday by the conversations that occurred during the aftermath uh, of the service, or what I like to call the post-game portion. 
conversations about the implications of the duality of light, because we did Thomas Young's experiment slightly, and I'll, I'll hit that really hard today. Uh, but anyway, uh, you begin to have conversations about the duality of light and conversations about the implication, implications of George Berkeley's, um, and I don't know if you know who George Berkeley is, but George Berkeley is whom uh, Berkeley uh, is named for, Berkeley, California, and the school Berkeley uh, is named for him because he was an extraordinary philosopher. And by the way, he was a Christian philosopher. Now that is a shame that his college is, is perhaps the, the centerpiece of atheism now today, named for a great Christian thinker. But anyway, George Berkeley had a stunning conclusion about perception and experience versus physical reality. And if George Berkeley's premise, his conclusion is correct, and it has never been refuted, then the consequences of his position being true is devastating to empirical realism. Now, that's a lot of words there, and I know it's going to be tough for you, but you're going to get through it. George Berkeley destroyed empirical realism. In other words, he said this, physical reality is not real. When you begin to say this is real, uh, this board is real, or the chair is real, or that you are real, or that uh, the, the building is real. That's empirical realism, our physical reality. And Berkeley said, our materialism, whichever you wish to call it, but all of that together. And George Berkeley said, there is no physical reality and proved it. He said that materialism therefore exists only because someone perceives it. Reality is that which is perceived. Reality is in the mind of someone. And now your obvious question. In other words, let me just say this to you. If I were to hit my hand against that board, where do I feel that? You would say you feel it in your hand. No. Where do I feel it? I feel it in my mind. Feeling is in your mind. Berkeley went on to point to take that kind of, if you kick a rock, you may think that rock is real, but Berkeley would say to you, the, the rock, the feeling of the rock that you kicked is in your mind. Feeling is in your mind. And we've talked about Berkeley before, and I'm bringing him back up again because this is where he comes to fight right here. This is what he did. So, if reality only exists, material, only matter, only exists because someone perceives it, it's in someone's mind, then the obvious question, who is the someone that is perceiving all of the reality? And if physical reality must be perceived to exist as Berkeley proved, some would say Berkeley proposed it, but I believe that Berkeley is correct, and we'll, we'll put Berkeley, his proof with regard to physical reality, side by side with Edgar Andrews's proof on the ubiquitous law and the implications of that. But if this physical reality only exists in the mind of someone, what then are the implications of that to evolutionary dogma? I start out by saying that law proves, law cannot be evolved, and the fact that law is universal proves that evolution cannot be true. And now I'm telling you that if Berkeley is correct and physical reality is perceived, what is the implications of that to evolutionary dogma? Let's put it another way. If one concludes that our physical reality 
Okay, stay with me now. This is tough, I know. I am mixing what? Physics and philosophy. Welcome to Cliffside. Hopefully this will not spill on the handout. I'm putting the Diet Coke on top of the handout. I know it's a risk. I know. But it's worth it to me because I don't want to bend down and get it anymore. It is my medicine. I need it. And I say that now because the people on the Internet are wondering what kind of medicine I've got. And you can imagine the choices they've made. So I'm identifying that with uh, Diet Coke. And hopefully Coca-Cola Company will uh, send me a remittance of some kind. Uh, that would be nice. Anyway, let me put this Berkeley's concept another way. And again, his, it is a stunning conclusion. Uh, never been refuted. Never. And most of you have never even heard of George Berkeley. Don't even know that this, this, this battle raged uh, a few hundred years ago. If one concludes that our physical reality is a virtual reality. Now, most of you kids are going to understand virtual reality. How do I know that? Because you play these three-dimensional, you go to the three-dimensional movies and you play the three-dimensional computer games or you play computer games. That's all you do is sit in front of your computer in your mom's basement eating, uh, what's, what do I eat all the time? Um, Pop-tarts, right? Oh, I love Pop-tarts. And Jesus, sitting down there, and you have immersed yourself into a virtual reality. You're on the outside of it in the sense that it's on a screen in front of you. But imagine if I could make a video game or a virtual reality where you're in the middle of it. That's what the three-dimensional movies are trying to do. That's what Disneyland tried to do um, when I went there uh, 40 years ago when I was uh, five years old. Okay, when I was um, 11 years old. I can't pass for 51, is that what you're telling me? That's a bummer. That's true, but that's too bad. My favorite joke, as you know, is to hit the ball off the fence and run to second base and tell the second baseman, that's pretty good for a guy in his 70s. Because what am I trying to do? I'm trying to set him up for the next at-bat, right? This guy's really old. No, don't take it personally. It's what kids think now. Okay. If one concludes that our physical reality is a virtual reality, it's something that is created for us to exist in, but isn't real unless someone perceives it to be real or someone imagined it into reality, and that's where Berkeley ends up being, by the way, then our physical reality, uh, if that's the case, our physical reality is a virtual reality, then evolutionary atheism has been destroyed. Does that make sense? Okay. If this physical reality, if Berkeley is correct, if this physical reality requires perception or experience in order for it to exist, and that's a complicated concept, don't expect to get it today. But if that's true, that means this physical reality is essentially a holograph to us. Does that make sense to you? Using a Star Trek reference, I hate to do that, they were all atheists. But if that's the case, this physical reality is a virtual reality, then evolutionary atheism has been destroyed. Why is that? What destroys it? See, because virtual realities cannot possibly, what? They can't evolve any more than law can evolve. 
If you, if you look at Berkeley and conclude he has been correct, and I believe you will, perception determines reality. Observation determines reality. If that's true, and I believe that it is clearly true, then evolution cannot be true because virtual realities cannot evolve. How could anyone think that a virtual reality could evolve? It doesn't make any sense any more than a law, a universal law. And you read your chapter 9. That's what, what uh, Andrew, Professor Andrew said in chapter 9. That was his key point, and I hope you got it. Now, next comes the obvious questions, doesn't it? Why was this physical reality conceived? Why so much of it? We were talking about that this week as well. How many stars are there out there? See, the key question is, how many not why are they there so much, but why are there so many of them? There are trillions of stars in billions of galaxies. Why did he do that? He could have just created this one planet, couldn't he? And the virtual reality could be on this one planet and everything else empty space, but that's not what he did. Who is he again? He's omniscient God. So this was the right way. The only way to do it is to put trillions and trillions of stars, billions of galaxies. And what is the purpose of that? What is being taught? Because that's what he does. He's a teacher. What is he teaching you? What is he teaching me? What is he teaching us? To whom is this purpose uh, being taught to? And why this specific way? Because how many ways can there be? Is there only be one way? How do I know that? Because he's omniscient. Omniscience demands that there only be one way. And that was what was being discussed last Sunday after the sermon. I want you now to go to all the churches you can think of and uh, call them up and say, what did you guys talk about after the sermon? Well, I don't think it's virtual reality in George Berkeley, and I don't think it's a ubiquity of law. And folks were also bringing up, one of you came up to me and brought up uh, the brain in the vat of fluid hooked up to electrodes movies. That's my... Uh, you all, I never saw the other movie, and so don't ask me, the one where everybody wore a black uh, overcoat. But you've all seen the brain, right? Uh, hooked up to electrodes in the vat of fluid, and they convinced the brain that it is in a body, right? You've seen those movies? Well, that's where they got That's from George Berkeley, Okay. And so you go into a room and you see a bunch of brains in a vat of fluid hooked up to electrodes and those, and those electrodes are creating a virtual reality for that brain. And there isn't any reality. The brain's in a vat of fluid, but it doesn't know it. And it's perfectly happy because it's fooled into thinking that it's in a physical reality. That is, in essence, the George Berkeley discussion. Okay? And it's in all the science fiction stuff. And Berkeley, by the way, would destroy this. What would he say? He said, this is impossible. He gets rid of it. Why would he get rid of it? Come on, you can do this. He would mock that, Berkeley would. He would destroy the movie, the premise of the movie, in case you like it. And I'm really sorry if I'm destroying this movie for you. Not really. I'm really not sorry. That is another fake sorry. See, Berkeley would, would look at this and he'd say, what's this? What is that? It's a brain. What's a brain? It's material. Absolutely right. It's physical. 
The vat's physical, the fluid's physical, the, the reality, or the, I mean, the electrodes are physical. And none of that exists, Berkeley would say. There is no physical reality. There is only the mind, a supernatural reality. Anyway, there was another, that discussion was going on afterwards. And I just, you know, I'm thrilled for you. I know that this is difficult. I know that it is very seldom discussed. It is critical to discuss it. Each and every one of us have to discuss it. And if you have a question, last week I was really happy because Jack was over in the dry erase board explaining things to people. Okay? How do you learn it? You explain it. It doesn't do me any good to explain it to you over and over and over again. You have to talk to each other about it and start to wrestle with it in your mind. That, by the way, is the only reality, your mind. Anyway, there was another discussion that was taking place as well last Sunday, and that, uh, that's the Luke 16, 1931 enigma or mystery. Um, uh, it's the Lazarus and the evil rich Pharisee question. And that's a, uh, another, and I've done this before. It's very important. I don't remember when I did it. I've done it a half a dozen times maybe. But I hope you see how it fits with our current location here at Romans 3, 19 and 20. Uh, which says, again, law does not save. Law is the knowledge of sin. Because you see, remember the story, I hope you do, um, Luke 16, 19 through 31. Lazarus the beggar is in paradise. He has died. And I make the, the, the statement that he died on the same day, almost the same time as the rich Pharisee. And yes, I call him a rich Pharisee because the evidence is that he is a Pharisee. This, he, this is being told to Pharisees and they would know who this particular rich Pharisee was because he's described. And so they knew who he was. They just had the funeral, if you will. Perhaps the funerals are at the same time. But anyway, there's a lot of time mark, I believe, that is consistent with both of them. So I have Lazarus, the beggar, dies and is in paradise, and the rich Pharisee is in torments, the exact opposite of what the audience thought would happen. I have Christ declaring the rich Pharisee to be evil and the beggar to be saved, and that's the opposite of what his audience expected, as you would know. And, and those two, torments and paradise, are the two compartments of Sheol prior to the crucifixion of Christ. And both have died. Their bodies are gone in the sense that their bodies are in the ground. And they, their spirits have passed. Their supernatural portion or supernatural component has passed to their destiny. And no longer can they access the previous physical virtual reality. There's a great gulf fixed, Luke 16, 26. A great gulf fixed. What's that? What's the obvious question? In other words, I have... Two guys, bodies here, spirits there, but they can't come back to this physical reality. There's a great gulf fixed. What's the obvious question? Why? And that's what was being discussed back there. Why this law of the great gulf fixed, or rule, if you will? And laws are what? Rules. So why is this law? Who made this law? Why did he make this law? By the way, is it a good law? Could there be any other law? No. So the real question is, is why don't I understand why this law is here and what its purpose is? Okay. And that's a profound question. And it's only solved when one realizes something. Um, and you've got to realize this, that everything this rich Pharisee says from Hades' Sheol, and there's a lot of it there, everything he says... All of it, all of it is evil. I don't care what statement you pick in it. 
Look at it. If you cannot figure out how all of it is evil, you will misunderstand what is there. All of it is accusing God of being unqualified to judge sin and condemn sinners. It is Matthew 4 once again, and connect it to, and it's a true event. So connect it to Matthew 4. It's not a parable. He never says it's a parable. There really was a Lazarus the beggar. There really was a rich Pharisee. And they died and they went to these places. They went to their destinies almost simultaneously. So connect it to Matthew 4 because that's also a place where Satan says that God is unqualified to judge sin, right? So those two fit together. And, and so the three tests of Christ and this true event of this, of these two men that die, uh, need to go side by side. It also connects to the parable of the talents in Matthew 24, 14 through 29, and the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19, 11 through 27, where once again I have a Pharisee calling God evil and unable to judge sin and unjust and unfair and having no solution to sin. All of that is Matthew 4. All of that is Genesis 15, as you know, and Gethsemane. All of that fits together. So I just cover that again for those who are hearing it for the first time. Now, notice specifically these Pharisees accusing God as being the author of sin in those two parables of the talents and of the minas, and unfit to pass judgment. That's very common today. If you say that God is the author of sin, he responds to you in two parables. Now, there's huge denominations that say that. Every now and then I get a one or two of them that come here to argue with me because they... Heard that I, I'll take it apart, I guess. I don't know what else to say. And they want to find out if it's true. And I can't, I, I don't know what to say to you. He gives you two parables and a true story that tells you that if you call him hard or the author of evil or a austere man, he condemns you for that because he is good. Do not call he who is good evil or the author of evil, Isaiah 5.20. So anyway, that's what's going on in this parable. But know that everything that comes out of this Pharisee's mouth, all of it is wicked, and it's a very complicated exchange between Father Abraham and the Pharisee. First off, the rich Pharisee does not care not even a small bit about his five brothers. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't want them to avoid torment. In fact, he wants the opposite, isn't he? He's evil. He wants them to perish. And how do I know that? Duh. He's evil. He's, in a, he's a son of a serpent. He's in the brood of vipers. He's in a place where there is something missing. What's missing where he's at? God's missing, which means what? Goodness is missing. There is nothing good where he's at, including him. All goodness gone. There's hell. There's the lake of fire. Not a speck of goodness there. That's what you have. So now I have what kind of man? How evil does he get? All he does every day is practice the same thing. What is it? Evil. How good is he getting at it? He's the Michael Jordan of evil in a couple of days, isn't he? He's hitting the ball out. He's Babe Ruth of evil. Really fast. That's all he does. All he's got left. Got no goodness. All he has is evil. You have the idea that there's some kind of baby daycare in hell or something. I don't know, whatever convoluted scripture idea that you got. And that, by the way, let me say this really fast. Because you find a verse in the Bible that you don't understand, do not throw out all of the scripture and focus on that one. Instead, ask yourself, 
Why is it that I don't understand this one? Ask God to help you with that one. Do not remove the rest of his Bible, especially his goodness, because you can't figure out what he does with children, for example. And you have a a daycare in the lake of fire. Okay. He's evil. He's the son of of the serpent. He's in the brood of vipers. He's in a place of no goodness. Only darkness exists where he's at. Everything he says is a lie. Every thought wicked. So you read that and understand that. Now ask yourself, why is what he's saying evil? How is it evil? And that's where you start. So, back to our question. Why wouldn't God give the rich Pharisee access to the current physical reality? And that should be obvious. What would he do with it? He would come to destroy what would he do with his brothers? What would he co- if I let the rich Pharisee come back to the five brothers? What would he do? I let his spirit come back. He doesn't come back physically. He comes back with his spirit. What would he do to the five brothers? What does he want to happen to them? He wants them dead. He wants them destroyed eternally. He would lie to every one of them. He'd say, "Hey, do what I did. I made it. To, I made it. I'm happy." Right? It's exactly what he would do. He can't do anything else, can he? All he can do is lie and destroy. It's all that's left of him. Does that make sense? So obviously we can't let the Pharisee come back in spirit because he would destroy everyone he could. Now compare that to Samuel and Saul. Samuel came back in spirit to Saul, right? And what did Samuel do? All good. All of it good. One of the great good stories in all the Bible. I hope I did it justice. Now, ask the converse. That was the question from last Sunday's buffet time. Why not allow the beggar Lazarus to communicate with this current reality? Kind of a supernatural video conferencing of some kind. Skype. I know something. I know Skype is something. That's all I know. But I know it is. Okay. Why not that? And then ask the the flowing questions. What would a saved, filled with wisdom, loving, filled with goodness and person say to us? What would he say? Because that's what Lazarus is. A righteous man filled with wisdom. And to whom would he say it? And whom would he seek out? What would Lazarus the beggar who's now, again, filled with goodness and love and wisdom. What would he testify about? What warning would he shout out? Lazarus the beggar filled with humility, filled with understanding. Would he want the job? Whose role is the job? What is the evil rich Pharisee actually asking when he says, when he asks that Lazarus be sent? What is he actually saying about God's character? Would Lazarus know? Because what the Pharisee is saying is evil to send Lazarus back. Why is it evil to send this saved, good, humble man back? That's why that story is complicated. Consider those and the others that flow from them 
and ask the right questions and make a list of the possibilities and the consequences. And we'll return to this as it's very important, along with Adam's federal headship, the Joe, John Hanin comma, sorry, Ezekiel 3, 16 through 21, John 4, 24, and Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7, just in case you were thinking, I forgot about them, and Kyle, I'm a trained professional, and I wrote it down again so that I wouldn't forget. And that's how come Erica is here, because we asked Eric long distance in, where was he, Amsterdam? Yes, we asked him. Does Erica know? And he said, Erica knows. Erica will be there because she writes everything down. Don't you, Erica? Yes, you do. And so she will not forget. So get a habit of that. Write these things down and try to list the possibilities. And I, I, I do that all the time, as I just uh, illustrated with those uh, four subjects, because those are coming back as well. But now it's time to take another run and we got just enough time to keep you from bleeding from the eyes at Thomas Young's double slit experiment and prepare yourself uh, to be here the next few Sundays. I'm going to keep beating it into you uh, until I'm satisfied that everyone gets it. It is not in your Who Made God book. Unfortunately, he didn't cover that. I wish he had. He's certainly very calm. I'm sorry. Edgar, Mr. Andrews, if you're, uh, if you're listening... You're probably the most qualified man to explain this as anybody. So put it in your next book. I'll use it as a textbook too, sir. And some small remittance, Mr. Andrews, for my advertising for you would be greatly appreciated. Anyway, prepare yourself for this every week until I think you've all got it. And how do you get it? You draw it out and you try to explain it, okay, to somebody. Just explain it to your kids. Okay, here we go again. As a math teacher, I used to work problems as many different ways as I could because I figured out that not everybody thought the same way. And that was my goal, though, ultimately, is to get them to all think exactly like yeah, me. Yeah, that's right. And then, Pinky, I was going to take over the world. Yes. Anyway, God calls himself, God, Jesus Christ calls himself light. It's, and it's not an accident. I am, which by the way is immediately deity, I am light. Not only any light, but he calls himself the light. Okay, So he picked one light out and said, that's me. I am the light, the primable light. I am the Shekinah glory. I am that light. And light is an important piece to understand uh, in order to get what he has done and why, what he will do and why. Uh, one thing about light right off the bat, just scientifically, I'm going to go really quick here to get you through this. Light converts matter into energy. Well, that's cool. And it also converts, it does the opposite, it converts energy into matter. It is the only thing that does that. Light converts matter into energy and energy into matter. It takes that which is unseen and makes it seen and takes that which is seen and makes it unseen. Now, that's really cool. And he calls himself that. I am the one that takes things that are seen and makes them unseen and things that are unseen and makes them seen. That's one of the aspects of light. What's the obvious question? Why is there even a seen and an unseen? Why isn't everything seen? We have an unseen. We have an invisible and a visible. Why isn't it all visible? That's obvious, right? Clearly, he wants to have, and there's no other way to do it because he's omniscient, he wants an unseen. Why? 
And he wants a great fixed gulf between the unseen and the seen. And we have to have eyes open to see the unseen. Why? And that's the right question, by the way, for Luke 16, 19 through 31. I gave it to you. Why is there even a seen and an unseen? So stop complaining now until next week. Okay. Thomas Young produced this experiment and proved that light was a wave. And when he did that, when he proved that light was a wave, and he did prove it, light wave, he contradicted somebody. Who did he contradict? Do you remember? He contradicted Isaac Newton. Very good. And so once he proved that, uh, because Isaac Newton said that the light was a particle, uh, Newton was declared wrong by Thomas Young. Light was proved to be stuff-like, not thing-like. Remember that from last week? And the entire scientific community of Thomas Young's time all the way to the late 1800s, 1890s, sorry, late 19, 1890s, I can't do it. The entire scientific community, all of science, all of scientists agreed universally, universally that light is a wave. And Newton was wrong. Okay, So all of science, light is a wave. There was only two on the other side that said light was a particle. One of those, Isaac Newton, who was the other one. All of science, all of science, proven light is a wave. Over here, I got two guys. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. Oops. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. Just the two greatest physicists of the previous thousand years. Those two guys stood over there by themselves. Keep that in mind, by the way, with current scientific discussions. Here is all of science. There's two guys. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. They alone say otherwise. They say light is a particle. Two against all. Next week we'll get into the photoelectric effect, 1905 photoelectric effect that Einstein is famous for. Um, but that's getting ahead. As I said, let's redraw this Thomas Young double slit from a different perspective now to see if I can help you uh, get it a little bit better. I drew, I drew it. I'm going to try to draw it uh, more dimensional. I'm going to try to make a virtual reality for you on a flat, dry erase board. Okay, here's my barrier wall right there. That's where I'm going to record uh, all my information. And here in front of it, okay, is, oops, I'll just make one slit is the wall that I'm going to shoot my projectiles through, okay? So now I'm going to put get rid of the... Those of you on the Internet, I draw incredibly beautiful pictures that everyone can understand perfectly. Everybody says, wow, you must have gone to art school, they say over and over again. They really like my Elmer Fudd. But anyway, you know, can you get that? I'll make it a little bigger for you. So it looks... Now you see what I'm doing here? I have one wall back there and one wall in front. And this wall, I'm just going to put one slit in front of it. And I'm going to shoot through that slit. Uh, think uh, something cool, uh, Mini 14 or something. Okay, I'm firing through that slit. Actually, I'd be firing this way, but I didn't want to draw it that way. It might confuse you. Fortunately, none of you are confused now, and that's, that's about to change. Okay, I'm going to fire through that, right? 
and all my bullets are going to make, because they're particles, thing-like. All my bullets are going to make a pattern. This is the pattern I'm going to get. Does that make sense? Okay? Then I'm going to do it again, except this time. I'll put two slits. And I'm going to fire my Gatling gun through the two slits. And what do you suppose my pattern will be? Because these are things. These are particles I'm firing through here. Okay? I'm going to have a pattern that looks like this. Everybody with me? Everything's great. We got it. Okay. Now, I'm going to come over here. Same thing. And I'm going to put one slit. And this time, I'm going to push water through that slit. Wave. Thing, particle, now wave. Okay? And I'm going to get through that one. I'm going to get... Pattern that looks like this. A lot of intensity right here in the middle. That's what it's going to do. It's all going to come through there and it's going to go and hit that spot primarily. I might have a little bit of overflow. Let's make a little bit for you. But that's the pattern I'm going to have on the wall. Pretty close. Now, I'm going to get rid of that. Get rid of that. Actually, I'm going to just get rid of this one. And I'm going to throw this water through those two slits. And what's going to happen now? And this is where Thomas Young's double slit experiment is so extraordinarily significant. What I'm going to have now is I'm going to have two waves here doing this, right? Okay. Doing that, going towards that wall. Does that make sense? And it's, that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to have, I'm going to have in this area right here, I'm going to have two things happen. I'm going to have destructive interference where the waves cancel each other out, and I'm going to have where the waves uh, come in concert or come in phase with one another, and I'm going to end up with a pattern that looks like this. Okay, I didn't put it in the middle of the. Uh, no, uh, let's tell the internet audience that I drew that perfectly dead center in the middle. Okay, I didn't. So it'll be in the center, okay? Does that make sense? Uh, center line, move everything over. Sorry. Not really. Uh, sorry. Now, think of it this way, if you will, because you've all done this, you've all been kids, you've all played with the virtual physical reality and you're certain that it exists and you haven't studied Berkeley yet who really will mess with you and so don't take philosophy. But you'll have to. If I throw a pebble into the pond, right, I get this. Right? Outward motion. Like so. Oh, wow, that is really good artwork. And then let's put the pebble in the center. I'm going to do it here. Oops, I'll move it over here a little bit. Same thing. And you, and you all know this, right? You have done this and you will see these these things hit each other, and that pattern it's almost like a uh, like a um, you see the mow the grass in the outfield of Yankee Stadium, right? Different, uh, that, and that's what we have here. Now I'm going to hand that out. I've only got three of them, maybe four. So pass them around so everybody sees them. Uh, let's give two to the main group here. And yes, Bill, make sure everybody, just give me, give me two of those back. <laughs> Hang on, Bill. And now look at this, because this is the pattern of water going through 
a double slit. Uh, hand that over there to Iwaka. Uh, she'll rue the day she ever came here. Uh, and pass these out. These are for you to keep. Okay? Pass these out. And Bill, give that to that group over there. And here's some more to pass out behind you. Start making sure everyone has them. Put them in your Bible. And look at that. Uh, huh? Quit complaining. It's your own. She did, huh? Okay. No buffet. No buffet. Oh, no buffet for either of you. <laughs> okay. What, what you need to know, when you look at that picture, you see what's called troughs, right? Troughs and ridges, like farming. Look at a farm field. You've all been in a farm field, and you know that, that I have a plowed area and then a high area, right? The high, think of it that way. Um, when this, when this, when this, uh, so what forms here is these troughs right here, see? These troughs form, and then these ridges form. And where the troughs are, that is where the waves fight each other and we end up with the void or destructive uh, interference. Where the lines are on the wall, on the barrier that shows me this, um, this pattern, that is where the constructive interference is and they add to each other. Two words we're going to have to learn. Diffraction or diffraction. And refraction or refraction. And what that is, is a, another phenomenon dealing with waves and particles. So now you know that particles will leave this kind of a, this kind of a, a thing. And because of the constructive and destructive interference, waves will give you that pattern of the troughs and the, the valleys and the peaks if you will, are the phase, in phase, out of phase. Now, if I have a barrier here, and I have my wall back here again, and I shoot, uh, and I, I hit this with waves, okay, and it doesn't matter what the waves are, if it's water or if it's sound or if it is light, when I hit this with these waves, okay, this is going to happen, right? But this will happen. They will bend around the barrier. Refraction. Diffraction. Diffraction really is the breaking apart and the, and the bending is the refraction. You'll also, you know that happens with waves because you have kids and they have bedrooms and they're playing the drums in this room right over here. Okay. Okay, art trumpet, yes, that's true too. The neighbors, they, they send me mail now. And over here, or they can just talk. You can be over here and they could be talking this direction with their waves, but that sound is going to do what? It's going to bend around and go through that refraction. Bullets and particles don't do that. Sorry about the movies. Nah, not really. Bullets, if bullets would hit this and just stop, right? Or they would go right here, but they wouldn't come around the wall like that. So, Sound bends. Particles don't bend. Waves bend. Now, ooh, got to really hurry. What I want you to do now is we're going to fire light at this double slit. So here's my light source, and I'm going to fire light at it. 
Okay? And what pattern do you think we got? You remember from last week, what pattern did I get? Did I get a particle pattern or did I get a wave pattern when I file fire white light? That's what Young said. And I get a wave pattern. And that's why they said Einstein and Newton were wrong because they got that wave pattern. I did it bad again. Those of you listening on the internet, I did it really good the second time. Okay. So there's my wave pattern when I fire light. And that was the uh, extraordinary thing. Now, what they did later is they said, okay, I got a wave pattern. Everything is good. And therefore, light is wave-like or it is stuff-like. And light is a wave. And it is not thing-like. It is not a particle. And then somebody came along and said, okay, well, I can. I have the capability, and they do, to fire one at a time. One. I make a device, and and I fire one particle at a time. And what pattern did it do when I did that? Yes, sir. Particle of light. Particle of light, thank you. But that's a very good question because it's not necessarily light where we'll go. I fire one particle of light. I get it down to one photon and I fire it at this double slit. What wave pattern did I get when they do that? Do I get a particle pattern or do I get a wave pattern? That's a trick question, by the way. I'm going to help you with it, but in time it's going to be really kind of funny to you, what I would like to call spooky. I'm not the one that called it spooky, by the way. Albert Einstein began to call it spooky, and I'm in good company. But I fire one photon of light, I get this pattern. How is that possible? I love Rebecca. I wish I could picture Rebecca for the rest of you. Wonderfully thought through, she's beginning to go, how can I get this pattern with uh, when I'm shooting one particle? This is quantum Physics, quantum theory, quantum mechanics. Okay? Because here's the possibilities. I have four, don't I? And I know I'm running long and it's going to happen a lot. It can go through one slit, can't it? My possibilities. It can go through this slit. Possibility number one. Do you agree? What's another possibility? It can go through this slit. What's another possibility? It can go through both of them. Or possibility number four, it can go through none of them. That's your possibilities. Okay? In order to get a wave pattern, what must happen? I must have constructive and I must have destructive interference. It's the only way I can get this this trough and an intensity pattern. And every time I shoot one photon or all of light at these two slits, I always get a wave. And if I shoot one photon, that one photon must go through both slits at the same time and then add to itself and then cancel itself out in order for that to happen. Now it gets worse. That's the easy part. That's the review so far. Now we're going to add something. If I put some kind of observation system right here, okay, I'm able to observe it. And we are able to observe it. Scientifically, if the experiment is observed, if the experiment is perceived, if George Berkeley is here, if that's big George, 
if it's observed, if a sensor is placed to watch or to record which slit the photon goes through, something happens. If I add observation, something happens. What happens is, is I no longer get a wave pattern, I get a particle pattern. by putting an observation to it. If, the, in other words, the observation causes a particle pattern. If the observation is removed, what pattern do I get? I go back to the wave pattern. Because I can see it physically. I will do it. We will bring one of these machines in here and I'll do it. We'll add observation, get a particle pattern. Take the observation away, we'll get a wave pattern. If George Berkeley is watching this, particle pattern. Okay, go ahead. Hmm? That's right. If I have any kind of recording or observation device, I get a particle pattern. No, it has to be able to observe it. It has to be able to count and determine which slit it went through. If it can do that, and we can do it, we have photoelectric capability, we have phosphorus, we have all kinds of ways to figure out which slit it goes through. Yes, sir. What's that? In other words, why is this not just a single particle uh, pattern? Defraction? You're going to have to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not understanding you, so you're going to have to come up and explain it to me after we're done, so I get done here really fast. And it's not your fault, I'm sure. Okay, let me just really quickly, i got to go fast now. If the observation is removed, the wave pattern returns. So the observation collapses the wave into a particle. And what's the obvious question? How can this be? What does perception or observation have to do with this? And they've concluded now that life has, life, uh, there's a slip. Light has simultaneously two different natures. Let me write that for you on the board. Are you seeing where I'm going now? Can you catch up? You're on the bus. Light has two natures. That doesn't surprise me. Does it surprise you? It has two natures. It behaves as a particle and it behaves as a wave. And this is accepted science except it's not explained, by the way, because science never explains anything. Science only describes things. That's what science does. That's gravity. I described it. It fell to the ground. I don't know how it works. Light has two natures. It is both a wave and a particle. No one knows why. We just know that it has two natures. It's described, not explained. Don't go to science trying to find explanations. If you want explanations, where do you have to go? I will help you. I will give you a hint. This is the only place that does it. 
Light has a wave particle duality. Wow, wouldn't I expect that? Duality. Let's focus on this part. Light has duality. It has a dual nature. It is dualistic. It is dualism. And I would expect that, frankly. Now, to make it more fun, this is the more fun part. You have to know this guy's name. De Broly, 1923. He decides, well, if Einstein is right, photoelectric effect is right, and light has a dual nature, then what's the obvious question? If light has a dual nature, what's the obvious question? Does all of physical reality, all of matter, have a dual nature? Does everything have a twofold nature? How about extending the twofold nature to all material particles, and notably to electrons? Does all material have duality? When I say all material, who's in the list? I'm making a list of all material. Who's in it? You're in it. Does all material have duality? We, you, us are all material. What is matter anyway? Is matter a particle or is it a wave or is it both? And if it is both, something critical turns it from wave to particle and particle to wave. What does that? You can do this. What does it? The observer does it. The observer does it. Someone does it. Who's the someone? How's he do it? Why is he doing it? What is the role of this observer, this perceiver? Is Berkeley right? Oh yeah, baby. Berkeley's right. How did this system come into being? Who designed it this way? Could it possibly have an evolutionary origin? Do you think that evolution came up with the dual natures of light? Is that your possibility? Do you think that's true? That's ridiculous, undefendable, and foolish on its face. Good luck. Do you see how it fits with the ubiquity of law? No time for Professor Andrews this week. Read chapter 10, 16 pages. We'll dismiss you now. Sorry to take so long. No, not really. Not really. It'll be worse next week.